0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda.
1: And this is Prashant Warren from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today?
0: Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, we're all still, uh, of course, in lockdown here in New York, um, watching, um, unfortunately, the uh, pandemic situation continue to grow and evolve. But, um, you know, I think uh, today we're going to Take this opportunity to return to the korean peninsula mm-hmm. which uh, obviously has been a mainstay on this podcast for a while but uh it's actually been a few weeks since we've uh, talked about developments in korea and i think there's actually a fair bit to discuss this week
1: that's right absolutely and I, I think a good place to start is i mean we did sort of talk about this um late last year when we were doing our predictions for 2020 and we did say that north korea was going to be something that we wanted to watch in terms of a flashpoint for the region Uh, Given the various developments we've talked about, um, you know, the status of negotiations and then the breakdown that ensued, U.S. elections coming up in November, uh, South Korean uh, elections in April. But there have been a number of developments that have occurred that have really made this even more uh, sort of complicated and a little bit of an imperfect storm. So we've had uh, the coronavirus, obviously, that has um, affected all the players uh, involved in these calculations. But we've also had um, in recent days and weeks um, you know continued uh, missile tests by the North Koreans, um, you know sort of the same provocative rhetoric uh, that we've heard before from them. Uh, and all of this has sort of increased the level of uncertainty we've had about North Korea as a flashpoint, but also the various elements of that that we've talked about, whether it's the relationship between North Korea and South Korea or US and North Korea. So I guess, Ankit, I mean, I guess a good place to begin is, I mean, really, where are we relative to what we talked about in, in December? And, and how would you characterize the recent series of uh, events that we've seen so far?
0: Yeah, I Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so for listeners that did listen to our December coverage of North Korea, where we talked about the Korean Peninsula quite a bit. Uh, given that there was a lot of discussion globally around this uh, idea that North Korea had imposed an end-of-year deadline on the United States to change its negotiating position. And lo and behold, there was no change in the U.S. negotiating position. In fact, the U.S. more broadly entered what I've called sort of a period of strategic apathy towards North Korea, sort of a play on the Obama administration's much maligned strategic patience. Um, Apathy in the sense that the president himself has barely been interested in talking about North Korea for the past few months, And naturally, now, with the United States in the midst of a pandemic, uh, that is unlikely to change. Um, But... If we go back to December, the important thing to remember is the fifth plenum of the seventh Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea. This was an unusual party plenum that took place for the second time in one year. The fourth plenum had taken place in April 2019. This is a high-level event for the Communist Party in which the leadership, in this case Kim Jong Un, uh, took the opportunity to present a new hardline policy uh, for North Korea, effectively based around this idea. That sanctions relief would not be forthcoming for the country so effectively North Korea would have to hunker down work hard prepare to protect itself against exterior enemies and uh, Kim made clear that nuclear weapons would continue to play an important role in the country's national defense strategy and that he hinted that a new strategic weapon would be revealed at some point suggesting you know a next generation ICBM or something like that while we haven't seen that what we have seen in the month of March is quite interesting and I think it's actually doubly interesting in view of how North Korea reacted to the then epidemic of the novel coronavirus disease breaking out in China in January. North Korean state media was very upfront to the world about how they saw this virus. They called it a matter of national survival. Um, Immediately you began seeing senior North Korean officials, uh, with the exception of Kim Jong-un, wearing face masks all over the country. This was treated with the utmost seriousness. Um, North Korea has not acknowledged having a single case of coronavirus, something that I think most uh, credible outside analysts think is a very exaggerated claim given the state of the epidemic in both China and South Korea. But um, the the missile test this month, I think, were an attempt not only to signal that normalcy persists in North Korea, but it was an opportunity for Kim Jong-un, I think, to emphasize that even with something like the threat from coronavirus, uh, he will not let his commitment to national defense or self-reliant national defense be uh, overtaken by other concerns. So we saw, um, so none of the missiles that were tested, you know, eight eight separate missiles were launched over four events in the month of March. Uh, they all came, all of the launches took places in pairs. The North Koreans have been doing a lot of launches like this where they use a single launch vehicle and they launch two missiles off that launch vehicle at once to give the crew some time to operationally train um, and even shorten the intervals between the two launches, which is something that's quite important for the use of these kinds of missile systems in mm-hmm. wartime. So that's been the kind of training that's happening. And it's, it's interesting because in, uh, in previous years, particularly 2017 and prior in the Kim Jong-un era, March was a pretty reliable month for North Korean missile shenanigans, uh, mainly for the reason that that was when the United States and South Korea, under normal circumstances, would conduct their mass mobilization joint exercises. So what used to be called Key Resolve and Full Eagle, but last year was renamed and recalibrated to a lower level under the new um, Meng or alliance uh, exercises. This year, the U.S. and South Korea, for obvious reasons uh, stemming from concerns about the pandemic in South Korea, um, cancel their military exercises but North Korea still went ahead with conducting uh, many of these tests and I should clarify that none of these systems that have been tested this month are explicitly presented by North Korea as having a nuclear role so they have been calling these tactical weapons uh, which mm. in their use really just means conventional um, so, that's been the kind of testing that we've seen. So, that's the broader context around why I think we've seen this testing. You know, there are, I always say that there's never a single reason that explains why North Korea conducts missile tests. Uh, there are technical explanations, political explanations, um, diplomatic explanations as well. Um, this is, again, a reminder to the United States that uh, the longer the US holds off on discussing sanctions relief with North Korea, Pyongyang will just push ahead with advancing its qualitative capabilities, both nuclear and conventional. So I think that's what we've been seeing this month.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's very helpful. I think in terms of getting a sense for listeners about how to think about continuity and change, uh, I'm just, uh, I guess a, a necessary follow up to that is, um, you know, we've been seeing North Korea is no stranger, as we've discussed multiple times in this podcast to, you know, multiple rounds of rhetoric that's deemed provocative. But the the recent round of of rhetoric, uh, and you wrote about this for the site, um, there were some questions about what exactly North Korea was trying to communicate. I think on the one hand, we have seen a continued pattern where North Korea uh, very deliberately, I think, has been trying to signal who they're directing their message at uh, relative to the personal relationship uh, between the two leaders and sort of noting that the you know, sort of letter exchanges and personal diplomacy with President Trump is con- continuing, but lashing out at you know, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for example, and, and the recent indication. But there was also uh, the, the fact that this was attributed to sort of a new department director general for the negotiations with the US. And there was a separate conversation about that regarding whether this was a, either a newly created position Or whether this might actually mean anything in terms of how the north koreans are actually engaging with the united states either bureaucratically or in terms of things that could affect the substance of diplomacy i mean do you think that there's anything that we should make of that or or is this maybe a little bit of a distraction from a lot of the continuity that we're seeing in the north korean rhetoric
0: yeah so that's that's a great question i mean um given the limited sources of information on political decision making in North Korea, uh, their external facing state media is a pretty useful source. And of course Mm -hmm. it is propaganda, so you can't really take it at face value, but it's useful in the sense that if you have context of what they've said previously, you're able to look at the changes and and kind of track where things are going. I think we've actually seen a remarkable degree of consistency in North Korean messaging since the collapse of US North Korea negotiations in Hanoi um, last February at the uh, second summit between um donald trump and kim jong-un the the statement that you mentioned from the new office um of um negotiations with the united states created within the north korean foreign ministry was interesting uh and certainly i think it, it feeds into a long pattern of the north koreans just kind of having had enough of mike pompeo uh, specifically mm-hmm. but i think i think actually another interesting statement was earlier in march when kim yo-jong um the north korean leader's younger sister. Um, issued a statement noting that Kim had uh, received a letter from Donald Trump, um, you know, sending him greetings for his birthday in January. But also uh, the important factor in Kim Yo-jong's messaging was that this is, I think, the key message that North Korea has been trying to send since the summits of of Singapore in June 2018 and Hanoi in February 2019, which is that the relationship between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump at a personal level are good. But that doesn't mean that the relationship between the two countries is in a good place at all. So Kim Yo Jong was actually quite explicit about this, and she and she stated that you know even um, even if um, the personal relations between the two leaders are good, um, it's you know the two sides will need to actually work towards a breakthrough diplomatically to fix the long history of hostility between the two of them. Um, And what's interesting is that it looks like the North Koreans are loosening up a little bit on criticizing Trump directly. At least, I mean, if you read the Uh, The statement uh, that you referenced about Pompeo, for instance, one of the things that that statement said is that, um, you know, this makes us misjudge who is the real chief executive in the United States, basically implying that Pompeo is actually running American foreign policy and not Trump, um, which is, you know, insulting towards the president of the United States, who is ultimately the final decision maker on uh, things like, you know, granting sanctions relief to North Korea at the United Nations or things like that, even though the secretary of state is ultimately quite influential. So maybe we are beginning to see... The gloves come off a little bit, and I think this raises the question naturally of you know what the year ahead holds because we do have these indications from the North Koreans that the you know we will see a return to strategic weapons testing, uh, the the testing of overtly nuclear capable weapons again, um, and what might that mean for how Trump reacts? Obviously, the United States uh, you know mentioned this before, but is quite busy right now with the COVID pandemic. But um, I think uh, this could be an interesting uh, thing to watch for in the, in the year ahead.
1: No, I, I think that's that's a very important point. And I think it gets to, we, we've seen the sort of coronavirus situation really play out in a number of ways. And I, I think one uh, particular way it's played out with respect to, I think, both North Korea and Iran, at least, is that there's been a, a presentation of the fact that, you know, you have this dynamic of you know, perhaps on the one hand, the coronavirus could provide an opportunity of the United States to really reach out to North Korea and Iran and kind of mitigate these flashpoints and deal with the humanitarian aspects of this. And then on the other hand, the suggestion that you know perhaps on the other hand, this could be kind of more of a challenge, right? This could actually accentuate the potential for provocative behavior from uh, North Korea and Iran. And you have the Trump administration who is very consumed by this crisis, and they're really not going to have the kind of necessary diplomatic capital to invest uh in actually resolving uh these issues i mean my sense is that we haven't really seen anything on either of those extremes so far i think we've seen more of the status quo of anything and there have been aspects uh, of this that we've seen in the headlines but as you said we don't really know a lot about what goes on in north korea it's important to stress that Um, but there have been suggestions and reports about how this is affecting North Korean shipping, um, the sort of revenue that North Korea gets from its illicit economy and exports to China. I mean, do you think that this uh, coronavirus situation uh, is actually a, a, an important variable within this broader sort of geopolitical uh, conversation we're having on the North Korea as a flashpoint? Or do you think that it, it probably just reinforces things?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a terrific question. It's actually something we haven't brought up yet. I mean. <laughs> You know, one of the things I I was trying to you know phrase this kind of tactfully because I mean, in many ways the very unfortunate coronavirus pandemic um, has basically offered us a natural experiment in what maximum pressure might look like on North Korea. Mm-hmm. I mean, effectively the North Koreans have sanctioned themselves better than the international community could ever sanction themselves um uh, sanction the north koreans they have um they reacted by cutting off their border with china cutting off any trade that was deemed superfluous which was really all trade shipping it appeared from satellite imagery analysis many north korean trawlers were sitting at port illicit ship to ship transfers uh, appear to have gone down um so this is really i think the kind of scenario that many sanctions enthusiasts, um, had really been hoping to see for a while. Of course, for the North Koreans, I don't think this is meant to be a permanent state of affairs. They are taking the lockdown seriously, and they did that early on so that they could weather um, the pandemic. Obviously, um, before, I guess, the severity of COVID-19 was known to the world, the North Koreans took it as seriously as they took any... Um, epidemic or pandemic in Asia, including um, MERS, the African swine flu, um, bird flu, uh, SARS. um, They have reacted, or even Ebola. Um, Because of the limited health capacity, uh, any kind of major public health crisis is a huge threat for North Korea's health system. And while the North Koreans are willing to accept aid, they aren't willing to accept aid to the point that they have to let a bunch of aid workers come into the country necessarily. They want to handle things themselves as best they can. So I think that's why we've seen them react um, in the way that they have. I think it will become clearer longer term um, how severe the implications of this will be for North Korea's ability to sustain its normal military activities and things like that. But I suspect it won't be, at least, you know, what they're telling us right now in March is that they still have the resources to carry out these exercises. I mean, not only did they carry out eight. Missile launches that were deemed significant, but they also tested a wide range of artillery. There was an artillery firing contest in March. I mean, really, these aren't the actions that a country strapped for resources for uh, military material, because, you know, I mean, every time you test missiles, you have to manufacture more missiles. So you actually have them available in your inventory uh, for actual deterrence purposes. So The North Koreans seem okay on that front. Um, But yes, I think economically, uh, certainly coronavirus won't be a footnote. I think it'll it'll be a a very important indicator of um, how well the North Koreans are positioned economically later this year. I would say, though, a fortunate thing for Kim Jong-un is that the coronavirus crisis hit North Korea after he, at the Fifth Plenum, and and earlier in uh, 2019 after Hanoi told the senior leadership of the Workers' Party that sanctions relief was not forthcoming and harder economic times were ahead. So he had already sort of made that part of the country's propaganda messaging before this economic calamity struck the country. Um, and of course, you know, it is a time of global economic crisis. Actually, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, yesterday, I believe, for the first time um, in a while, North Korean television was broadcasting White House press briefings on coronavirus to indicate that this was a crisis for the United States as well. So I think it's it's really an attempt maybe by the North Korean leadership to say that, look, this isn't only affecting us. This is affecting the whole world. It's even affecting the United States. Um, so, you know, we'll we'll have to get through this. Um, but really, this isn't something that we can attribute to, you know, mismanagement by the leadership or anything like that.
1: So, so what are some of the things that I think looking ahead... Um, for, for listeners, that we should watch carefully uh, with respect to the situation. And I think you already pointed out, you know, given the pattern that we've been seeing, you know, perhaps more rhetoric and, and some sort of testing from North Korea. We also mentioned briefly, you know, South Korea is going to be heading into elections later this month. There are, you know, continued uh, issues with U.S.-South Korea negotiations on cost sharing. And actually, you know, a number of uh, individuals were actually unexpectedly furloughed um, recently that that also made the headlines. But what are some things that you're going to be watching for uh, in the coming weeks and months that that will be important to pay attention to within this broader flashpoint?
0: Yeah, so let me begin with North Korea. I think... Um... I think things are going to pick up Uh, this statement that came out bashing Pompeo at the end of March concerns me a little bit because we're heading into April, which is a very significant month in North Korea, mainly for the April 15th national holiday, the Day of the Sun or the founder of the country Kim Il-sung's birth anniversary. Um, That date has usually been marked in the Kim Jong-un era with prominent events, including a satellite launch in 2012, a major military parade in 2017 that unveiled all sorts of um, new military hardware, including uh, nuclear-capable missiles, uh, including the Hwasong-12, which is capable of ranging Guam. I still think it's premature for the North Koreans to hold a military parade. In February, there was some satellite imagery evidence that they were conducting training at their usual parade preparation grounds, but obviously once it became clear that there was a new unknown disease spreading rapidly out of China, uh, the North Koreans very quickly canceled that parade preparation. Mm -hmm. I I still suspect April is too quick. What I will be looking for, though, is the October 10th anniversary later this year. It's the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Workers' Party of Korea, a very significant milestone. And um, they've already indicated in state media missives this year that uh, the national defense scientists in the country are being asked to treat October 10th as an important deadline. So perhaps we will see a new type of intercontinental range ballistic missile unveiled at the October 10th parade. I suspect there will be an October 10th parade, if any parade this year, or we might see a satellite launch or some other significant demonstration around that time. Um, the other thing, I you know, like I just said, would be to watch the North Korean economy and, and signs of unique stress um, if and when things return to normal between North Korea and China, which I think is becoming more likely given that China is at least indicating that it is returning to normal uh, internally on on some level, even though Chinese data might be entirely uh, off the mark in um, in telling the world that, you know, things are back to normal within the country. So that's one thing. Uh, In South Korea, yeah, I mean, the April um, National Assembly elections are gonna be an important um, midterm referendum on President Moon Jae-in. I don't think North Korea policy is necessarily going to be uh, the issue on which many Koreans will be voting um it, i think it will mostly break down along partisan lines and mostly i think uh where there are swing voters um it will probably have more to do with how president moon managed south korea's coronavirus response uh, there was a lot of criticism uh, internally um particularly by south korean conservatives of his response early on but now south korea is sort of the global success story um and that's mm-hmm. i think probably going to result in a positive outcome for the democratic party uh, president moon's party in south korea which um, I think it's an important signal for the North Koreans um, to know that President Moon does have continued political support if inter-Korean communication and cooperation is to continue. Um, Kim Jong-un has indicated that you know he is willing to collaborate over coronavirus with South Korea. So we um, may see some interesting developments there. Um, and finally, I mean, with the United States, I think the big thing to look for is really how North Korea approaches the November election. In 2016, the North Koreans were very concerned with the election. Uh, They released a major um, long memorandum from their foreign ministry sort of outlining all what they saw as the sources of failure for uh, U.S.-North Korea relations during Obama's eight years in office. They might do something similar with Trump, but more seriously, I think they will stage major tests and things like that to elevate themselves on the debate agenda when uh, we might see you know debates between who knows what we'll see this year but um if there are debates between the presumptive democratic nominee uh probably joe biden at this point and donald trump the north mm-hmm. koreans might stage a launch in 2016 um, literally during the last, uh, the third debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the North Koreans launched a Musudan ballistic missile just hours before the debate uh, to ensure that they had a place on the debate stage and that, that you know, the candidates might have a question about North Korea. I actually don't recall Oops. if they did get a question in the end, but I think the North Koreans will um, make clear what their hope is for the next administration uh, if it is a Democrat. So uh, again, I think uh, those are the big things to watch for uh, right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think the big thing where both of us will be watching carefully is how this coronavirus situation plays out too across the region. It it does seem like this is, uh, something that's consuming uh, all the major uh, capitals that are involved, and really is a lot of uncertainty about the the true extent of the situation, particularly here in the United States. I think,
0: so. That's right. Yeah, certainly, I think it'll be something that um. Will continue to not only affect uh, the Korean Peninsula but the entirety of Asia and the world. So yeah, it is the biggest story right now, and uh, yeah, for listeners, I mean uh, definitely keep an eye on the Diplomat. We are uh, pretty much treating coronavirus as uh, the, the the huge story that it is, and there's a lot of great, running coverage from countries all over, all over the region. So uh, yeah, we hope you'll uh, find something useful there. Uh,
1: but yeah, well, Peshon, yeah, right. go ahead. I just wanted to quickly add, I I think it also reinforces the point. I I think we both discussed this in our uh, episode last year when we were talking about events for 2020. And we did say, you know, be prepared for an unexpected event to really steal the headlines. And I think, you know, coronavirus has really proven that uh, to be correct. So as we're doing future geopolitical planning, I think, you know, it's important uh, to keep in mind for listeners, too, that we should be baking in these unexpected developments as well in our, in our planning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's certainly, I think a, um, a huge left hook. Uh, so we'll, uh, yeah, keep, uh, keep following that. Um, anyways, Prashant, I think we'll leave it here this week. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, thanks for joining me. And, um, for listeners make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, please do, uh, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, any platform that really hosts um, The Diplomats' Asia Geopolitics Podcast. We really do appreciate that. And finally, a note from our sponsor. This episode of The Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.